Morning, Harvest. Good to see you today. Hey, um, uh, baptism, first one ever at 7 George Street. It's pretty awesome. In fact, that's the uh, only one we're doing uh, this weekend, um, and we had a number of other people lined up, and schedules changed, and um, things came up, and so those are being rescheduled. Uh, but uh, one, of the, one of the great things about having our own facility now is that we can... Uh, we can do baptisms anytime we please. How, how's that, right? We can do them whenever we want. And so uh, we are going to do them a little bit more frequently than we have in the past because of the uh, convenience of that. And uh, so if you need to be baptized, if you watch that and went, you know what, I just I haven't done that yet, and I need to do that uh, to be obedient to Christ. I thought Kristen gave a very strong word through those scriptures at the very end, didn't she? Uh, she preached the word right there. That was uh, prophetic. And so if, uh, <clears throat> if some of you have not done that and you need to do that as a testimony of your faith in Christ, then you let us know and uh, <clears throat> we'll fill the tank for you. We are looking at another date in January uh, coming up uh, sooner. So uh, also I'll just say this, um, uh, with regard to this series, Here I Stand, that we're in, we, we did, we, we know that this is a kind of a more robust, uh, in-depth series and we wanted to provide some of you who like to dig in even deeper uh, because the messages themselves on each of these doctrines is kind of, um, it's, it's more like a survey of the doctrine, and there's so much more that could be said about all of these and has been said. And so if you want to take advantage of the resources, not only do we have the resource page set up at harvestberry.ca slash here I stand, uh, you can go there and see all these online digital resources, but also our resource center, if you prefer real books, uh, get out to the resource center in the West Lobby, and uh, you can see some uh, some great books there that um, are in addition to all the things that I'm saying here in these messages. And, and for those of you who want to go a little deeper in there, go and check all of that out. Sound good? Ready for the message? All right, here we go. Uh, let's start with a quote from a man named Peter Kreeft. He's a, a philosopher. Um, he said this, Those who meet Jesus always experience either joy or its opposites, either foretastes of heaven or foretastes of hell. Not everyone who meets Jesus is pleased. Not everyone is happy. Uh, but everyone is shocked. Now, it's exceedingly difficult to be indifferent or neutral with regard uh, to Jesus. Those who truly, and, and to use Kreef's words, those who truly meet Jesus, I'm not talking about people who have like this casual awareness of him, okay, but not not just a passing awareness, but they meet Jesus in the sense of uh, studying what he said and looking at how he lived and understanding the demands that he put on people's lives and what he was calling for from us. Those people who truly meet him cannot be indifferent toward him. I mean, once you're confronted with who Jesus is, you either love and follow him or you reject him and in essence are his enemy. And in today's message, I'm going to give you the chance to decide what you think of Jesus by diving deeply into who he is. And we're going to declare by the end, here I stand on Jesus Christ. And I hope for your sake it will be foretastes of heaven and not foretastes of hell. Because to know Jesus is life transforming. And we have established in this series repeatedly that that what we believe determines how we live. And so locking down what we believe about Jesus is so critical, it's going to dictate the entirety of our lives from now on. 
And this is how important this really is. Because this is not just one philosophy or religion or approach to life in, in, in a world of choices. This is how important this is. Peter preached this in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So that's getting us to this place where we're going to establish again what we believe about Jesus. And here's the statement. God, the Son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, is the third person of the Trinity. Now, if you've been tracking with this series, you've been here for uh, messages uh, 1, 2, and 3. This is the fourth one. In the last two messages, we looked at the Trinity. We looked at God the Father. We looked at God the Holy Spirit. And now we're looking at Jesus Christ. And you might remember that the statements for the Father and for the Spirit were a little simpler than this one is. That this one actually carries a, a bit more of a punch to it, a little bit more content. And that's necessary because of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in the Godhead, in the Trinity. It requires us to say a little bit more about His divinity and His humanity. If you like the, the $1,000 uh, theological words, you know, this is a theology series. I've thrown a few words at you that only theologians use, but... The reason why we have a bigger statement, a more complete statement about Jesus Christ is because of something called, ready for it? Ready? The hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. That is that Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully God, and the union of those two into Jesus Christ is this union, this this um, eternal union of Christ's human and divine natures into one being. And so we need to say a little bit more about him because within the Trinity, he is unique in that way. <clears throat> in fact, there's evidence that the marks of the crucifixion, something suffered in his humanity, the marks of the crucifixion in his hands and in his feet, the wound in his side from the sword, that those are eternal marks. Forever an indication of the uniqueness of Christ as both human and God. After the resurrection, of course, while Jesus is in his glorified body, he appears to the disciples and to Thomas who had not yet seen him and who was doubting and wondering and questioning whether the resurrection had truly happened. And Jesus said to Thomas, in his glorified state, he said to Thomas, look, feel and see the marks of the crucifixion by every indicator the marks of the crucifixion are in the eternal union of Christ's humanity and divinity in his one being Jesus Christ is forever fully God and fully human and so what I believe God the Son Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man is the third person of the Trinity. Now, why I believe that, I'm going to look at eight attributes. If you're, uh, if you're keeping score tracking, uh, making notes here, Jesus is, first of all, eight attributes. The first one, pre-existent. He's pre-existent. He is before all things. Now get your Bibles out and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We are going to look at a few um, longer passages. 
And so uh, in, in the Word of God, Colossians 1, this is uh, one of the passages in the Scripture we would just say, say has the highest Christology. I mean, when you just read it and you're impacted by what it says about Jesus and it's so majestic in its descriptions. Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He is, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. That is to say, not that he was born, but that he has the place of preeminence. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." Well, multiple times, uh, Paul is explaining to us here that Jesus is before everything, and he's so before everything that actually everything was created by him. He is uh, before all things. Jesus was not creator. He is actually, he was not created. He is actually the creator and the sustainer in the sense that he holds the entire creation together. In other words, Jesus has always been. He just always been. Back in the gospel, uh, we saw this when um, Jesus was having a conversation with the Pharisees who loved to oppose him and weren't too happy with his ministry. These religious leaders were questioning him. And at one point, they asked him a question Do you think you're greater than Abraham? Now, Abraham, he's right up there, right? It's like for the, Jews, for the Jewish people, it's like Abraham and Moses, top two. No one else comes close. And, and so they're saying, do you think, Jesus, by your teaching, you think you're greater than Abraham? And Jesus replied, remember his reply, before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. Now, notwithstanding the bad grammar, okay, we have a verb tense problem there, okay? But Jesus is saying something very powerful in this moment that the Pharisees didn't miss. In fact, by saying, before Abraham was, and then invoking the next two words, I am, he's actually, he's actually getting the thing back to a conversation that God had with Moses. Okay? Remember Abraham and Moses, one and two for the Jewish people? They're, they're saying, you think you're greater than Abraham? Now Jesus is invoking an answer that God gave to Moses. See, God was recruiting Moses to go to the children of Israel and it, who were slaves in Egypt and to, and to say to them, I'm going to lead you out. And Moses was like, well, what credibility do I have before these people? Who, who, whom shall I say sent me? And God said to Moses, go and tell them the I am sent you. Okay, so now you're getting as close as we can possibly get to a name for God. He is the I am. In other words, the one who has always existed, the pre-existing one. Before anything else was, I am. That's God. So, so, so God says to Moses, go tell the children of Israel, the I am sent you. Jesus says to the Pharisees, I'm greater than Abraham because before he was, I am and the pharisees do not miss the point okay it's not like they said oh oh so that's who you are and that's great and they left them alone correct <laughs> incorrect what did these jewish leaders do they they did what they did so often they bent down to pick up stones because they're about to stone him they want to kill him for blasphemy 
because they know what so many people today don't know and don't realize that when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, that Jesus was saying, I'm God. I've always existed. Not only do I know, Jesus is saying, not only do I know who Abraham is, I predate him by like forever. I'm God. I'm the I am. So he's pre-existent. He's also, and you hear hints of it in that, obviously, not even just hints, but kind of outright declaration. Secondly, he's also divine. He's divine. The whole fullness of deity is in Jesus. Now you're in Colossians 1. Flip over to Colossians 2, probably one page turn, verse 9. Colossians 2, 9. For in him, speaking of Jesus still, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. How much deity is in him? Yeah, all of it. All of the deity. Okay, Jesus has all of the deity. It, if we said he, the fullness of deity was in him, that would be all the deity. And Paul goes out of his way to say, now the whole fullness, let's stack the things up here so that we get the point that, that there's no part of Jesus that isn't divine. He's 100% God. Now, uh, again, John's gospel, the gospel, um, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. You know that that's still true today. No one has ever seen God. The problem with actually seeing God in his fullness, God the Father, is that God dwells, Paul told Timothy, in unapproachable light. That the examples that we have in the Scripture of people who actually got into the presence of God got even close to it. Moses, his face glowed such that it frightened people. Uh, Isaiah said that he was a man undone, that he was coming apart at the seams for having been brought into the thorn room of God. John fell down as a dead man. Paul's life was never the same. And they only got like just barely, a, a, barely, barely a touch of the experience of the glory of God. And, and if you and I got into the very presence of the glory of God, being sinners that we are, we would be like just consumed, just vaporized in the moment. No one, no one has ever seen God. The only God, now track with me here, we're looking at John 1.18, the only God who is at the Father's side. Who is that? That's Jesus. When he ascended after the resurrection, he ascended, he said, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. The only God who's at the Father's side. That's Jesus. He has made him known. What we know about God, we know because Jesus has revealed himself, revealed God to us. Jesus, the Son of God, has made God known to us. And all of the attributes of God are in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I read the gospel, and I see sometimes when he doesn't look very godlike. And that's a great objection. Sometimes um, he doesn't look like God. Sometimes we see him not knowing something. Who touched my robe? Why didn't he know that? If he's God, why didn't he know that? Sometimes we see him not exercising his power. 
Is he God or is he not? Is he all-powerful or is he not? And the reality is that he's 100% God, but he's also 100% human, and he was dwelling amongst us. And in his humanity, he set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. In fact, in Philippians 2, 6, and 7, we'll come to this passage again a little bit later, but it, it simply says this, though he was in the form of God, in other words, he was God himself, did not count equality with God, did not count using his divine attributes a thing to be grasped or held onto or used, but instead made himself nothing, emptied himself of the use of those attributes. No less divine because he chose to live among us. And so Jesus Christ is preexistent. He is divine. And then let's start getting after his humanity. He's also virgin born. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now 600 years, 600 years prior to the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah wrote this. And by the way, the Isaiah scroll, the great Isaiah scroll, was found in the Qumran caves, the Dead Sea Scrolls, dating to this time period, 600 years prior to Christ, authenticated by those who don't even believe in Jesus. 600 years before, the prophet writes this, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. 600 years prior to Christ, the prophecy was given. And Luke 127 affirms this, that the angel Gabriel came and, and met with this young woman, a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. And in her conversation, Mary understood the implications of all of this. Mary is talking to the angel Gabriel, and, and she has a question because evidently her parents had had the talk with her. A few of you got that. <laughs> Apparently her parents had had the talk with her. She knew, right, she knew that one cannot get pregnant apart from So she asked the question, Luke 1.34, how will this be since I am a virgin? I've never been with a man. And the angel Gabriel explained to her she's going to conceive Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That would actually fulfill the most ancient of prophecies concerning the Savior, the Messiah, the Gospel. Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve had sinned, God delivered a promise about the gospel and he said that a savior would come and the savior would come through the seed of the woman that was the first prophecy and 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 this was the fulfillment of that and the virgin birth demonstrates to us several things first of all the power of god in salvation the virgin birth tells us right up front that god's power is sufficient to save and, and no one else's power is sufficient to save. The virgin birth tells us that the miracle of the virgin birth actually speaks to the uniqueness of God's ability to save. So no one else can save. God's power, God's uniqueness, the virgin birth also is the only means by which the union of deity and humanity could take place. 
And the virgin birth also speaks to the perfection of Christ since sin passed from Adam's seed through men. And so the virgin birth permitted Jesus to be fully human and yet without sin because no man was involved. So he was virgin born and he was also incarnate. Obviously, if he was virgin born, born as a human being, he was incarnate. That is to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is fully human, John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now this, you can't take this lightly. The first 30 years of Jesus' life, we would just say, were unremarkable. So unremarkable were the first 30 years of Jesus' life that people didn't even know that the Messiah was among them. All we really know in the gospel accounts about Jesus' first 30 years are that he was born, that he was dedicated in the temple, that at uh, 12 years of age he got separated from his parents on a trip to Jerusalem. And uh, that makes every parent feel pretty good about themselves, right? Even Mary and Joseph blew it with God, the Son. Um, So those three things. And then we have a verse that tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And that is the sum total of everything we know about the first 30 years. So unremarkable were his first 30 years that when he did finally start his ministry and he went back to his hometown of Nazareth and he went into the synagogue and they said, oh, isn't it great? Jesus is back. Let's get him to read Isaiah. And so they put Isaiah in front of him and he read a little portion of Isaiah. And then he said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. And they all went, what? You're just the Nazareth kid. You're just a punk from the village. Why do you now think that somehow you're the fulfillment of this prophecy? That's how unremarkable. That's, that's how, how much the incarnation was a reality in his life. How human he had actually become. The word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And then... This comes later. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He was called Emmanuel. Matthew 123 interprets the word for us. It means God with us. Divinity with humanity. Divinity and humanity together in one being. And so he had this human body. And we see evidence of this throughout the gospel. He, he got tired at times and needed rest. He needed to pull away. We see him hungry. We see him thirsty. We see him acting very human in the temptation. In Luke 4, in Matthew 4, you see the temptation. And he fasted for 40 days. And then he stared down Satan as he tempted him three times. And at the end of that, he was so weary and so exhausted and so depleted as a human being. Matthew 4.11 tells us that the angels came and ministered to him. Presumably they brought him food and drink and they served him and helped him until he regained his strength so he could leave the desert, leave the wilderness and go and start his ministry. We know he was so human that after his trial when he was savagely beaten and so weak and compelled to carry the cross beam of the 
cross on which he would be crucified, compelled to carry that, and he just couldn't go any further. As a human being, he was so injured, so weakened, that a man named Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service to carry the beam the rest of the way. We know he was so human that on the cross, six hours after being crucified, he succumbed to his injuries, and he died, and he was buried. Jesus Christ was incarnate as a human being and lived as a human being amongst us. He's human in every respect, and, and that's, you know, honestly, when I think about it, that's what makes him a Savior worth following, a Savior, a God worth devoting my entire life to. The Creator became the creation in order to identify with me and rescue me. I think about the depth of love that that communicates. I think about the mercy and the compassion. See, I don't have a God as so many people perceive God to be so detached and, and so distant from us. Yes, he's other. Yes, we've already looked at this. Yes, he's transcendent and he's other and he's so different than us. But he's also, uh, we looked at the word, he's an imminent God. He's right here with us. He's eminent in our lives. He's present. He's involved. He's not a God who's detached and distant, but one who understands and identifies with me in my deepest hurts and my deepest needs. He was incarnate. He was made flesh. Jesus gets it. How you doing? You with me still? Want to keep going? See this next. As a human, Jesus was impeccable. He committed no sin. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. None. The preacher of Hebrews said to his listeners, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Again, having such a Savior who knows what I'm facing, who knows what temptation feels like, that's an immeasurable gift to us. But listen, we could even ask the question at this point, and I know when we talk about the impeccability of Christ, that he didn't ki commit any sin, when we talk about that, some people will just say, but I don't think it was possible for Jesus even to sin. You ever thought about that? Was the temptation even real, or was Jesus just kind of walking through that, knowing he couldn't actually ever give in to sin? Was he just walking through it as an example to us? And somehow, if we think it was just an example, and there was no possibility of sinning, that somehow we just take away some of the power of that for ourselves. A lot has been written about this. Could Jesus have sinned. Let me answer it this way, very simply. In his deity, no. He could not have sinned. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with evil. Full stop. He can't be. God is holy. 
He's the very embodiment of holiness and righteousness. He's perfect in every way, can't look on sin. And if Jesus, in his divinity, had actually sinned, then he would have ceased to be God because he would no longer be holy. And so in his divinity, the answer is no, he could not have sinned. But Jesus faced his temptation in his humanity. Without divine help, or rather without tapping in to his very own divinity. So yes, the temptation was legit. Wayne Grudem said it this way. Jesus refused to rely on his divine nature to make obedience easier for him. Jesus met every temptation to sin, not by his divine power, but on the strength of his human nature alone, perfectly depending on God the Father and the Holy Spirit at every moment. Just like we have to. In order to overcome sin, we have to do it the same way, overcome it the same way Jesus did and because he overcame it in the way that he did, every one of us has the assurance that we can overcome temptation. We cannot sin if we choose to, if we rely on the same power that he relied on, the power of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit in his life and in ours. Well, all of that sets us up for uh, this. Jesus is also servant. He made himself nothing. Now, you're in uh, Colossians. Your Bible should still be open there. Turn back a few pages to Philippians chapter 2. I said that we would go here. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 6 through 8. Jesus is a servant. Now, speaking of Jesus, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, we looked at this already, in other words, he is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus embodies the perfect servant, the perfect sacrificial servant. When I think of the kind of people we want to be, the kind of leaders we want to be, the kind of servants we want to be, the kind of Christians we want to be, I wonder if this is what we think of first. I wonder if we get to this place of humility and brokenness and sacrifice. Do we really want to get to this place of serving others the way Jesus got there? Made Himself nothing, emptied himself of himself. Are you willing to empty yourself of yourself? The ultimate expression of servanthood is love resulting in sacrifice. Let me say that again. The ultimate expression of servanthood is love resulting in sacrifice. I mean, if I'm really a servant of Christ, and sometimes we use this phrase of ourselves, I serve Christ, I serve others because of Christ, I'm a servant of Christ. But are you 
are you really a servant of Christ in the way you're approaching it, in the attitude you have, in the sacrifices that you're making? Do you really love someone enough to serve them in a sacrificial way? Are you willing to give something up to serve someone else? A little bit of time, maybe a lot of time, maybe some emotional energy, maybe your finances. Are you willing to slice out a portion of your life or, or all of your life for someone else, for the sake of someone else? And so many of us are so consumed with our own thing. We haven't emptied ourselves. We haven't brought ourselves to the place of nothing in order to serve others the way Christ did. Jesus served us through the incarnation, through the miracles, through his teaching, and through the substitutionary atonement. That is that he substituted his life for ours, his bloodshed atonement to cover our sins and forgive them, his blood sacrifice on the cross, taking my place and yours there, paying the price for our sins so that we might be redeemed. He made himself nothing to do that. And are you willing to do that for others? Being a servant led him to be the Savior. He came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now this is Paul writing, he's writing from his perspective, his whole background, what he had done prior. Then Jesus meets him, he, he comes face to face with Christ and becomes a servant of Christ and follows him. And so he's thinking about his whole backstory and all the sin that was there. And as he evaluates that and what Jesus did for him, he's raising his hand and going, you know what, I am the chief of sinners. Now here's what should happen in the life of every single believer as soon as Paul says that. And I could ask you this question. How many people in this room feel that they're the chief of sinners? Go ahead and raise your hand if that's you. A little hand, little hand. Everybody should have their hand up. Everybody should have their hand up. You see, because I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to compare my life to Paul. All I know is what's in my backstory, and, and no matter what it is, what I know is that whatever's there, it separated me from God. And whatever's there, it was keeping me from heaven. And whatever was there, it was an insurmountable amount of sin I could never overcome and never compensate for and never cover. And so from my perspective, not comparing myself to anyone else, from my perspective, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. My hand is in the air to that question. In fact, I want to keep my hand up. I want to walk around in my day with my hand up. I want, I want to do this so that people would come up to me and say, Sir, why is your hand up? I'm the chief of sinners. There was no possible way that I could get into a relationship with God. And Jesus Christ saved me, though I was the chief of sinners. Some of you still aren't convinced. Don't you know what so-and-so did? Don't you see how much more heinous that is? 
how much more sin it represents. Don't you know that I was basically living my life as a good person? Listen, it's a sin to compare your sin to the sins of others. So, you know, on that account, you are the chief of sinners. No comparison. It's just me and Jesus. I'm, I'm figuring out my thing with him. Thursday night, we had a prayer night in this room, and I uh, walked us through Psalm 14 as we prayed for so many different things. And Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says this, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. So he's looking down on humanity to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Is anybody down there? Anybody get it? Anybody following me? Anybody looking for me? Anybody at all? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none, none who does good. Not even one. How many have done good? None. Nobody in this room has done enough good to overcome the sin that's in your past. You're all the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. We need a Savior. Jesus Christ is the only one. Remember what Peter said? I quoted it earlier in the message. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Well, he's servant and he's servant savior and he is the king of kings. This is what's written on his robe. He has this name written. I want you to turn to Revelation 19 because you've got to see this. Revelation 19, not counting the maps and the concordance, it's the last page of the Bible. Okay. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. The Apostle John is trying to describe as best he can all these images and visions that he's seeing. This is something that is as yet future to us. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who is this? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does that fire you up? That fires me up. I love reading that passage. Again, this picture is yet future for us, and maybe it's soon. Maybe it's soon, even so. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, the rider on the white horse, will reign forever, and whatever this life throws at us, whatever nonsense we are facing in our own lives, in our family lives, or, or the nonsense we hear about on the news, lots of nonsense out there. How many people experienced some nonsense in the past seven, seven days? For sure. But whatever's going on, I can come back to this passage going, this is the way it's going to end. 
He's coming. He's riding on a white horse. He's faithful. He's true. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. Nothing's going to rattle that. Nothing's going to shake the foundations of my life. Not for those who are waiting for this ride or waiting for Jesus. Every king, every emperor, every president and prime minister will fall before him. Every billionaire, every every conquering general, every superstar athlete, every Oscar-winning actor and Grammy-winning singer will bow before him. Will fall before him. Because that's who Jesus is. Here I stand. On Jesus Christ, pre-existing, deity, virgin-born, incarnate, impeccable, servant, Savior, King of kings, and Lord of lords. And so as we've been doing throughout this series, we hear the doctrinal part, we hear the part that we believe, and then we ask the question, how's that going to change my life? How I'm living because of it. And just one application point this week. One all-encompassing application. I worship Him. I worship Him. Turn back to Philippians chapter 2. We read the part about Him being the servant and and setting aside His divine attributes and, and giving His life in that way. Obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross, verse 9, because of everything that he did, because of everything that he is. Therefore, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now think about that in light of the intro. Not everyone, this is what Peter Kreef said, not everyone who meets Jesus is pleased. For some, meeting Jesus brings foretastes of hell. Because every knee should bow and every tongue confess, not just those of believers, but also unbelievers. Someday, even those who rejected him will know. But for those of us who worship him, it will be the fulfillment of every hope. It will be our faith being made sight. It will be love flowing to us, unhindered and overwhelming. It will be the absence of death, of sin and sorrow. It will be foretastes of heaven. And so don't you think that in light of that, we should worship him now? That we should bring everything that we can to worship our Savior. To worship Christ is to devote the entirety of one's life to Him. That's what it means to worship Him. To devote the entirety of one's life to Him. And it is not, as some would suppose, the weekly gathering to worship Jesus. Some of us have this mistaken notion that, yes, I worship Jesus at harvest, on the weekend, at such and such a time, I give him those 85 minutes. That's my worship. And the rest of my week is, I don't know, something else. Do you know how many minutes are in a week? Anybody know? Not like I knew. I just looked it up. 
10,080 minutes in a week. 10,080. Now, if you give 85 of those 10,080 to your concept of worship, that is 0.84% of your week. Less than 1% of your week is going to worship if this is what you think is worship and the rest of it isn't. Less than 1%. I mean, less than 1% isn't enough of anything, let alone worship. Have we devoted the entirety of our life to Him? This gathering is just one part of it done together. Worship is the complete surrender of one's life to Christ. Romans 12.1, that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our entire bodies laid on the altar for Him. And so it is to attribute worth to Him in every part of our life with our words, with every word we speak. We worship Him or we don't. Think about all the words you speak in a week. I think about all the words I speak in a week, and I speak a lot of words, and it's frightening, frankly. Well, I don't, I don't speak the words, but what about the attitude? Okay? You say, well, I said the right thing, but inside I was like, mm-mm, no. And, and Jesus sees the attitude, and in our attitudes towards what's happening and the people around us, am I worshiping Christ? In our actions, in our giving, Okay, we, we just gave a few minutes ago. Some of you gave this week. Did you give in such a way that showed that you're actually worshiping Christ through this? Through your service. We worship Christ in how we treat our spouse. Your marriage is worship. Okay, it, husbands, you are worshiping God when, when, you, are loving your, when you are uh, loving your wife. Uh, wives, you are worshiping God when you are submitting to and respecting your husbands. And listen, every marriage challenge, every marriage conflict is a worship issue. It's a husband not doing what he ought to be doing. It's a wife not doing what she ought to be doing. Maybe it's both of them at the same time not doing it and no one's worshiping. But your marriage is an act of worship. Let's talk to teenagers and 20-somethings for a minute. Somehow you think that as a teenager, you have some enshrined constitutional right to be a jerk toward your parents. That somehow rebellion is built into the culture. Whereas I understand from the scriptures that uh, children are supposed to honor their parents, and by the way, that command never goes away. You're supposed to honor your parents. It's worship. It's worship is what I'm saying. So you, you either worship Christ in the way you relate to your parents and grandparents or you don't. Parents, same thing. Are you, are you provoking your children to anger? Are you making life difficult on them? Are you the one being a jerk? Okay. It's worship. The parent-child thing's worship. Are you working hard for your employer? That's worship. Employers, are you treating your employees with respect? That's worship. Every aspect of our lives, being good citizens of our country, meeting the needs of the least of these, ministering to those on the margins, the vulnerable of our society, it's all worship. Logging your 5,000 hours, getting out in the community, impacting people's lives is worship. 
Contributing to harvest helps at Christmas. It's worship. Every part of it is worship. It's advancing the mission he gave us to tell others about him, using our gifts, planting churches. Worshiping Christ is certainly singing, the lifting and clapping of hands and praying and proclaiming and listening to the proclamation of the word as an outward expression of what's happening inside of us and what's happening throughout our week. Worship is reaching for the day that's described for us in Revelation chapter 5 when the ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation will gather before the throne of God and say together to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Here I stand on Jesus Christ. Do you stand there too?